Katia Stick is engineering for us, folks, so call on in. You can chat with Katia, and then uh, we will put you on the air. We are, of course, talking about what is going on in the metro D.C. area uh, in regards to this COVID-19 pandemic with a particular focus on your rights at work. And I'll tell you what, Ed Smith, we have been doing this show uh, for a number of years now, uh, and uh, I don't know when your rights at work uh, have ever been more important uh, than than right now. Uh, and, and in fact, I, I want to start with you um, because mm-hmm. you have a hot issue at the moment. Uh, folks, of course, know Ed uh, works with the D.C. Nurses Association. So that uh, already puts you on the front line, Ed. Uh, but you guys have a little bit of an interesting problem. Why don't you tell us about it? Well, first of all, Chris, good to talk to you and uh, hope everybody out in the audience is uh, practicing uh, social distancing, staying at home as much as possible because this uh, poop is real, as they say. And um, as we see the numbers rise, uh, we're in for a bumpy ride, at least for the next few weeks and I'm sure longer. Um, but yes, uh, unfortunately, uh, I have to report and we have sent out press releases on this and we've talked to our members about it, but we did have a um, nurse that was employed at Howard University Hospital for a number of years succumb on uh, Friday, uh, March 27th. Uh, it has not been confirmed uh, by Howard University Hospital or Howard University of uh, the cause of death, but from everything we know, uh, it's pretty clear to us that the cause of death was uh, COVID-19. Um, so, and, and of course in our other facilities, uh, there's, um, infections and exposure to nurses and, and other healthcare workers. Um, and, uh, so we decided, uh, early, the, earlier this week that we needed to, um, uh, discuss this issue, these issues, with the press. And, um, so that's what we did yesterday. We put out a press release, uh, talking about the need to test our healthcare workers, similar to how the district is testing firefighters, EMS personnel, and the police. And that testing would be right now, um, the guidelines 
promulgated by uh, DC Health, formerly the Department of Health, say that if you're exposed but you're not showing any symptoms, you're asymptomatic, then if you're a healthcare worker, we're not going to test you. You're not going to have priority. Uh, so we believe that that is irresponsible and dangerous and will result in more deaths and more infections. Uh, so we've made it very clear that um, hospitals should provide, hospitals and healthcare facilities should provide testing for any healthcare worker that's been exposed. Um, and uh, they should send them home on quarantine uh, and paid quarantine until such time as they've been ruled out uh, and have a negative test. Um, so far, uh, we have not heard back from the mayor on this. Uh, we have not heard back from the District uh, of Columbia um, DC Health. Let, let, let me just stop sure. you like, uh, because I, I'm having a little bit of a hard time understanding something, and, and maybe maybe it's just me, uh, but how is it that anybody in their right mind would not want to test uh, you know, the people on the front lines and, 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 and no, let's broaden this out. I mean, obviously, you know, your folks, the nurses, but I'm thinking, you know, the firefighters, EMS, you know, the, the, the first responders, uh, any of the folks who, frankly, if we're going to get out of this thing, uh, in more one piece, you know, uh, we need to have your folks in, in, in tip top shape. I heard just a, just a heartrending report early this morning about, uh, a couple, they're both, uh, healthcare professionals. Uh, uh, the wife came down, uh, with a fever over the weekend. Uh, the husband called in to the hospital and said, you know, look, I, I really can't come in. I got to take care of my wife. They're like, you need, you got to come in. We're shorthanded. You know, you, you, you know, it's, it's not, you know, we, we can't, you know, let you do that. He goes in, uh, and he comes home the next day and his wife is dead on the floor. Okay. I mean, this oh. is, this is, this this oh, is, you know, this is all of our worst freaking nightmare, right? I mean, so, so, I mean, this is, a, you know, a, a tragedy, a human tragedy, but I mean, you know, this is somebody who, who, you know, wanted to be there. I mean, could he have done anything for his life? Who knows? That's not the point, right? Right. Um, so why, why, again, why would, uh, the mayor or anybody else not want to test, um, you know, your, your members? I don't, Help me understand that. So um, normally, Chris, and the audience out there, you know that I'm a very aggressive uh, advocate for our nurses. And there will be times when I will be very aggressive in calling out employers and calling out the district government. Uh, it's a different time now. I don't I wouldn't characterize it as the mayor does not want to. Okay. I think they're setting the priorities based on CDC guidelines. I think the guidelines are wrong, irresponsible for the reasons that I, I think are clear. You know, if you don't have a test after exposure, you're going to continue to work and you're going to possibly infect patients, co coworkers. And then when you go home, you might possibly infect your family members or maybe even some of the general public if you're uh, going out to the grocery store or whatever. So the need to for the quick the early testing is to keep the infection from uh, ballooning up, right? Um, I think honestly, we and, and we'd like to know what DC Health has to say uh, from our uh, questions to them. Why aren't you changing the guidelines to allow us to be treated the same as uh, first responders? Uh, 
I think you'd have to ask them, and they're not answering. Uh, my guess is it's probably not enough tests. And my feeling is, okay, if there's not enough tests, you need to test right now. And if you run through them, then we've got, we've got to find ways to get more. But you can't, you can't base decisions and guidelines on what's the current supply, the amount of supplies. You've got to base it on medical necessity. What, what is the, what does the research say? And it's pretty clear the research is telling us test early. And they didn't do that in Washington State. They didn't do that in New York. And now they're starting to make the same decision. Are you still there? So, I don't, so I don't know. Yes. I'm here. Oh, whoa. We've, we've, got, we've got somebody on the line. We have just been joined, if I'm not mistaken, by uh, Debbie Berkowitz. Debbie, is that you? Yeah, that's me. Can you hear me? I can. Loud and clear. All right. Cool. Technology. So sorry. No, 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 no. It's uh, we've been having all kinds of technical issues. So kudos to uh, Katia, uh, who's on the board. Uh, let me just, Debbie, let me just introduce you. You are the Worker Health and Safety Director at uh, the National Employment uh, Law Project. Of course, we've had Judy Conti on here many, many times, and we're happy to have you join us. Um, we were just talking, Debbie, about this issue. Ed works with the nurses here in town and is having uh, issues getting them tested. Uh, and I actually wanted you to, you know, you're at the National Employment Law Project. You, you've you been dealing, obviously, with a lot of these issues. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, you know, I'm so glad you're doing this segment because I think we're, this is an unprecedented time in that the federal government has failed to ensure the safety and health of workers including those most at risk, healthcare workers. The government has abandoned its role in not only keeping healthcare workers safe, but also supermarket delivery, warehouse, factories, public transportation, sanitation, everybody working. So unlike, you know, most crises, the, there's an agency called the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and their job is to assure that employers are protecting workers. But OSHA even though they were asked by the AFL-CIO, by hundreds of public health professionals and worker rights organizations, as well as by many members of uh, the House and the Senate, to issue an emergency standard that would set out the required protections for all workers, all the essential workers working right now, they have not done so. So there are no specific requirements that are enforceable in any workplace. There's no specific requirements that employers have to follow. So now you're really left with, you know, you're just at the will of the uh, employer. And so for unionized workers, they have really stepped up, as you know, in Washington, in terms of uh, the unions are pushing for like Giant and Safeway right here to put shields between the customer and the consumer, to give more sick leave, um, to uh, get some childcare uh, help, to uh, give them sanitizers. But with nurses and doctors, you know, it's amazing to me that we don't have sort of set protections in place. And because of that, uh, you know, the nurses and doctors, if they don't speak out, you know, they may never get the protection they need to um, keep people safe because there's no government agency that that's going to be there to help them. And if I can add one more point, and that is 
We knew there was going to be a shortage of the kind of respiratory masks, the N95s and other protective equipment that healthcare workers would need. There is a national stockpile that only had about 13 million of these respirators that the administration has been very slow to find, figure out where they are and get them out to uh, workers. But we need like 300 million respirators in this crisis and the administration should have months ago put in, uh, enacted the Defense Production Act. People probably never heard of it, but it gives the president the authority to say to makers of masks all over the country, we need your masks and you need to sell them to uh, hospitals here in the United States as opposed to sell them overseas. And if they're not enough masks, let's produce more. So we're in a situation now where... Um, Workers really have very few safety rights, and so they're risking their jobs to, you know, ask employers to protect them. That's uh, Deborah Berkowitz. She's a worker uh, health and safety director at the National Employment Law Project. Uh, Ed Smith, uh, my co-host, of course, with the uh, D.C. nurses. Ed, you probably have uh, lots to say or lots to, to ask uh, Debbie, but go go ahead. That's you, Ed. Hi. Yeah, sorry. I, I had I had my uh, uh, you, you were on, on mute, weren't you? I had my phone on mute, trying to exercise the proper telephonic courtesy. Uh, Deb, thanks so much for being on. Uh, you, you know, I I can't add any more to what you were saying. Uh, we are trying to push to get uh, personal protective equipment. So one of the things, Chris, that I think is important is if if they if we do have the proper equipment to deal with uh, individuals who are suspected of uh, contracted the virus, then then the need for testing goes down. Um, so they kind of are, they're very interrelated. Um, so, uh, Deborah, the, the issue on OSHA, um, uh, it, what kind of support is there uh, congressionally to try to push OSHA to um, uh, promulgate emergency guidelines or emergency re- regulations, excuse me? So first, I just want to echo what you just said, and that is, in this crisis, worker health is public health. If you protect worker health, including the health of our first responders who are taking care of our infected patients, you will not only stem the transmission, but you will save lives. So to protect the public, you need to protect workers. So I agree with you. I think... uh, we just put out a call to action, and I can send it to you, that uh, everybody should call their senators and their representatives to tell them to demand that OSHA issue an emergency standard, not only to protect healthcare workers now, but all workers. And, uh, you know, OSHA was very close to having a final standard that would have protected workers from COVID-19. You see, the way OSHA works is... They write standards and then they enforce them. So the last time OSHA dealt with a real uh, sort of infectious disease was AIDS. And uh, in the early 90s, OSHA issued a very specific standard on what every employer has to do to protect workers from AIDS and HIV at work. And that's why dentists wear gloves. That's why all these protections are in place for housekeepers and, and everywhere else. And it was only because Congress told them to do it that they issued it. 
But now, um, you know, you only have a Democratic House, not a Democratic Senate, and you have a Republican administration who was lobbied by the American Hospital Association, and they oppose this. They don't want a standard. They don't want any enforceable requirements. And I really don't see OSHA doing this on their own. Uh, and that's why we have to call our senators and our congresspeople to demand that they demand, that they legislate that OSHA has to issue an emergency standard. Yeah, uh, thank you for that. By the way, Chris, uh, one other point that um, I've learned uh, from some of our other healthcare union uh uh, uh, healthcare unions uh, was that some um, supervisors are not wanting to give protective equipment to people that clean house housekeeping um, people that are kind of the most needy in some ways and uh, like for example if I'm cleaning the ER uh, there have been some times when uh, supervisors have told them that they can't have a N95 mask and it's only because doctors uh, and, and nurses have kind of insisted that they get the mask that there's been some change so you can see employers um, say they want to have they care about their employees and they want to have the health protections but sometimes when it cuts into that bottom line you know we talk a lot about money on this show Chris when it comes to oh yeah line sometimes health and safety just is like, okay, it's just the afterthought. One other thing, Mark, before we let you go, I mean, you've been working on these issues for a long time. And one of the things that's always struck me uh, about a lot of the issues that, that we deal with in the labor movement, uh, let's, let's talk specifically just about OSHA for a second, is that a lot of times these are things that take time. I'm thinking about black lung. I'm thinking, you know, a lot of occupational diseases take time to develop. And, and so it's it's sort of hard for the general public, I mean, if you don't have somebody with black lung in your house or, you know, you know what I'm saying, for them to understand it. And, and I'm just wondering if, if maybe people are finally starting to get these issues in, in, in a real way now. Debbie, you still there? Oh, yeah, I completely think this is very different. I think for most people, this is the first time they have a full understanding of how few worker safety rights workers at risk really have. And I don't think you have to look farther than uh, your family or your local cashier that you know very well from going all the time or um, any of the, of the doctors and nurses, if you've ever been in a hospital who've saved your life. I mean, we now know the people at risk. And uh, so I think it, 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 um, it brought it home, but you know, it is incredibly uh, stunning that the federal government is it just walking away. They don't care. And so it's really now left to, you know, the D.C. Department of Health, You're our mayor here, or the governor in Maryland, or the governor in Virginia, to step up and to say, how are we going to protect these workers? I mean, I, um, I'm so, I hear from all... I get reports all over the country, mostly from healthcare workers, where they're not given, you know, doctors and nurses not getting N95s or having to reuse them day after day and put them in plastic bags, which is not how you sterilize these masks if you have to reuse them. Um, and a lot of concerns about the other, you know, the invisible workers in a hospital that bring you the food, that clean the, um, 
uh, you know, the emergency rooms. I just want to make it clear for everybody that the main way this thing spreads is respiratory drops. And um, CDC says very clearly on its guidelines, and, you know, a lot of housekeepers in hospitals and meal service people come in contact with COVID-19 patients. And CDC says very clearly, if you don't have a mask and they don't have a mask, then you could be around them for just a couple of minutes, and then you're in prolonged exposure when you really are, uh, you know, elevating your risk. So uh, we need to get all these workers into, into uh, the, the, you know, those that are dealing directly with the patients, N95s, those that only have very brief contact. Everybody should have a mask. Patients should have a mask. And I have to say, I think... Every grocery store worker should be given a mask and everybody in a grocery store, every customer should be given a mask. So I think that's, uh, that's probably where we're heading. Absolutely. I can tell you next time I go out, I don't have a mask, but I'm wearing a bandana. I just hope they don't think I'm sticking up to join. But Deb, I really appreciate uh, what you're doing. We'll check in with you and stay safe out there. All right. Okay. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. You take yeah. care. You too. Uh, Deborah Berkowitz, she's Worker Health and Safety Director at the National Employment Law Project. You can find out more at NELP.org. Now, uh, normally, Ed, this would be a bit of a light story. You know, uh, today would normally be what? Uh, opening day for the Nationals, the World Champion Nationals. However, uh, that is not happening, and that's a good thing because uh, it would not be safe to put, um, was it 25, 30, 40? I forget how many go into Nationals parties. It's a lot of people. You'd it's really, a lot of folks. You'd have yeah. to do some serious social distancing uh, out there, but we do have a serious. Now, of issue. course, now of course, if they were losing year after year, you might be able to you might be able to have a game with all the social distancing. But now that they're a great team and the World Series champions now, uh, and and just on a personal note, Chris, baseball is probably one of my favorite sports, and I love uh, checking in on all the stats and love watching the games. So. It's 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 kind of weird, you know. We don't have sports to watch. No, um, we don't. We don't. But this is actually what sets up our next guest and the problem that we're having, which is, you know, when you go to your your favorite pastime there, uh, what do you do? You grab a what? What do you? What, what's your favorite beverage there, Mr. Smith? I will get a beer from uh, the, the 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 third uh, in the in the section three hundreds. Okay. And then I like to, and then you got to get you got to have a dog, even though there you go, really got to have a dog food. or two. Well, so you know you got all those workers, right? Here's the problem that we have those workers, and on the line with us now, Margaret Sharp. She's the uh, DC organizing director for Unite Here Local Twenty Three, and those are her members that you're talking about. And Margaret, there's a problem, right? That's correct. Good afternoon, Chris. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, as you said, today would have been opening day at Nationals Park, and it is a good thing that that's not happening um, due to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, however, that leaves hundreds of workers at home um, without the job that they were looking forward to starting. Um, and your listeners may have heard that um, the league had committed $1 million per team to pay stadium workers who are out of work due to the um, pandemic crisis. However, the folks that you're talking about who serve your beer and uh, cook your hot dog and sell merchandise, um, they work for subcontractors who are excluded from that commitment that the league had made. And so at Nats Park, there's over 1,200 concessions workers. And we as a union are calling on the nationals um, to commit to pay its subcontracted food service workers 
uh, for the home games that have been canceled for the season so far. Now, now, Margaret, here's a, put some perspective, and I want to do two things. One is we're seeing this story play out, you know, again and again. I think we've had to run three or four stories just in the last couple of days in Union City about, you know, certain groups of workers that wound up, you know, you'd think with, you know, two trillion dollars that would cover an awful lot of folks, and it does, it does. I mean, let's be clear, uh, and that's a good thing, but it's very interesting about who is getting, uh, uh, you know, excluded or not included, um, and. This is not part of that. This is money that, that you're talking about is coming from Major League Baseball, a million dollars per team. And then you had put a, you sort of put an interesting context because I guess I'd known this a while back in terms of, you know, owning a baseball team is almost like owning a, you know, a currency printing press. I mean, they, they, they make a little bit of money, right? That's right. I believe the um, average profit that teams made in 2019 was $39.5 Wow. <laughs> That's per team? That was the average. Wow. So right. some are making more, some are making less. And I'm thinking you know, as a D.C. team. So so the idea here, and, and I don't know if you put a number on it, but I'm thinking that to pay 1,200, you know, concession workers, uh, and that's a part-time job, as I recall, right, even during the season? That's right. It is, it's a seasonal job, so they work the, the home games. There are folks who work there uh, year-round, but the majority of the concessions workers um, are working only during the home games. So we're, we're not talking about a really large number here to keep these folks on the payroll, right? Absolutely. The number would pale in comparison to that $39.5 million average. Um, and in particular, as you said, and we all celebrated last year that the Nationals were World Series champions, um, and certainly the, um, you know, the workers at Nats Park love the team. They love the city. You know, um, many of the workers there have been there for years since the stadium opened. And so everyone is incredibly excited um, at the World Series victory. But as a result, we would also like to see the Nationals um, be leaders in paying the workers who are out of work right now um, because the season is not happening. Now, what kind of response are you getting from the owners? Uh, so far, they responded saying that they would forward our request to uh, Levy Restaurants, which is the subcontracting company um, that that employs these folks. Um, so that that was the extent of the response that they gave us. Um, and there have been. It's a classic kicking it, you know, kicking it upstairs or downstairs or. You know. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, Ed, you know, you uh, it was very interesting when we when we came into this segment and, and you know, you you have a very particular I mean, it was very personal for you. I mean, it, it almost seems like, you know, your your concession vendors. And I'm thinking that, you know, for a lot of us, I mean, you know, we don't get to mix with the players or, the, you know, that the, the concession folks are, are really a bit kind of the face of the team in some ways. Right. Well, you know, there's this one woman that. uh goes up and down the stands and sells beer and different stuff. And, and, and she, I think had also worked, uh, Camden yards and a lovely woman. And I think of her, um, and you know, I was trying to do some calculations, Chris, as I often uh -oh. do. Uh -oh. Ed's calculating. And, and I was thinking, okay, let's talk $15 an hour times $4 uh, times four hours. Maybe I'm wrong here. Um, and then multiplying it out, for 81 games times 1,200, it comes out to about 5.8 million for the entire season, according to my 
if you're looking at a fifteen. Let's ask, let's ask Margaret. My guess is yes. Margaret, but I figured I, Margaret is he was, in the right ballpark there. That was my question. You know, I have not done the math uh, myself, but um, you know, it's it's certainly a number that I think the Nationals can afford. <laughs> You'd think so. Wow. I mean, it really, I mean, it, you know, like, you know, $6 million is a lot to you and me, but, you know, as you said, you know, they're making uh, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in, in, in profits. And, and I guess, again, you know, seeing this play out, uh, you know, we've seen this with some of the transit drivers. So this in Maryland where the governor want to pay hazard pay to the folks who are out there, you know, doing frontline stuff. And it just, it you know, it strikes me as, yeah, I mean, even during normal times, it would seem, you know, and, and I know, Margaret, you, you deal with this sort of stuff on a day-to-day basis in, in quote-unquote, normal times, but times like this, you know, it just seems, what's the word that I'm looking for? Uh, insensitive, callous, short-sighted. I mean, uh, you know, it's, I, I would think, and, and maybe, Margaret, before we let you go, you can respond to this, you know, these are folks that do it because they love the game. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, what are they going to take away from being treated like this? That's absolutely right. As you say, people who work at Nats Park love the team and it's a, um, you know, was going to be an exciting day today um, on opening day to be there. Um, but frankly, these workers are among some of the most vulnerable um, in our city and many of them live in the neighborhood, you know, um, around Nationals Park and would like to see the Nationals be a, a good neighbor um, and would like to see the team actually take care of them. Because, as you have said, they are a part of the fan experience of going to a game and um, drinking your beer and, you know, being able to um, enjoy the, the game. And so. I think that it's really a shame that so far the Nationals have not um, made this commitment, but we're really hoping that they will because these are very, very difficult times for these workers who are at home right now. Well, Margaret Sharp, we really appreciate uh, what you're doing on our website, dclabor.org. Uh, you'll find a wonderful photo of, of some of Margaret's uh, members and a link so that you can sign the petition. Uh, and hopefully when we have uh, Margaret on next week, um, fingers crossed, we'll have some good news to report. Wouldn't that be nice? I certainly hope so. Thank you, Margaret. Really appreciate it. Be safe out there. Thanks. You too, Chris. Appreciate it. Thank right. you. So far... I'm sorry, Chris. <laughs> uh, she's the D.C. Organizing Director for Unite Here, Local 23. Uh, and then we're going to go to our song, but back to you, Ed. Yeah, I just wanted to let the audience know you can still call in at 202-588-0893. And calling in and using your phone and talking to me and Chris is not going to get you uh, infected. I promise. <laughs> well, we might infect you with some radical ideas and, you know, get you organized. Yeah. Work well, you know, and and a lot of times we are radical ideas, but what we're talking about today, this is just this plain is, common this, sense, right? Right. Do the right All thing. Right. Absolutely. All right. Now, a uh, couple of things coming up. Uh, we are trying to get Sister Elise Bryant on the line. She's going to tell us about a very important day earlier this week. Uh, but today, not only was uh, opening, but it is also uh, the day that the Union Label Department was chartered by the American Federation of Labor uh, on April 2nd, 1909. Uh, Ed Smith and I were not around. I know. So we got a we got a little tune for you. Let's uh, this this is from Joe Glazer. Let's check it out. Mm-hmm. 
union label When you are buying a coat, dress or blouse Remember somewhere our union sewing Our wages going to feed the kids And run the house we work hard But who's complaining? Thanks to the ILG, we're paying our way. So always look for the union label. It says we're able to make it in the USA. Look for the union label when you are buying a coat, dress, or blouse. Remember somewhere our union sewing, our wages going to feed the kids and run the house. We work hard, but who's complaining? Thanks to the When you are buying a coat, dress, or blouse, remember somewhere our union sewing, our wages going to feed the kids and run the house. We work hard, but who's complaining? Thanks to the ILG, we're paying our way. So always look for the union label It says we're able to make it in the U.S.A. Everything in life is a negotiation. We are back, Chris Garlock, Ed Smith, with uh, what is it? Our third, uh, our third coronavirus week here or something. Hey, uh, folks, sorry, do not call in. We're having some technical issues, as you can imagine. Uh, we are we're just amazing. I mean, uh, we're all over the place, except for uh, I mean, physically. I mean, Ed and I are usually all over the place, even when even when we're in the same place, we're all over the place. But uh, we're literally uh, doing this remotely from our home. Katia is uh, working the board from the studio and then trying to patch the uh, calls in. And uh, so there are various technical issues. So we are not able to take calls, which is uh, sad for us this week. But I'm sure we'll have this solved by next week. And we'll uh, maybe we'll just maybe we'll just do an all open phone show. What do you think, Ed Smith? Wouldn't that be fun? That would be interesting. Uh, you know, I'd probably get questions that will stump the lawyer. <laughs> that would be all right. We can stump Ed. We'll call it, we'll call it Stump Ed Week. That would be totally fun. Sure. Um, 
Yeah, no, that would be really cool. Hey, um, in case we don't get Elise Bryant on uh, as as we're running short on time um, Tuesday, and I almost missed this, which, you know, you can forgive me because I may have had a few other things on my mind, but do you know what day Tuesday was, Ed Smith, without looking at the show sheet, the, the sheet sheet? March you, never, you never look March, at it anyway, so. March 30 for cheat sheet. What? <laughs> March, March 31st. Uh, yeah, it was March 31st. I have no idea. I bet your wife Bonnie knows. <laughs> Bonnie. That's equal payday, bro. Equal payday. Ah. Yeah, you yeah. remember what that is? Every day should be equal payday. Oh, ain't that the truth? Ain't that um, the truth? That would be, I'm guessing it's probably on a date that, that uh, women have to work that many more days. I don't know. You tell me. No, no, exactly right. Exactly right. So check this out. And, yeah. and uh, do the do the math you know, on this. But so here we are. Uh, March 31st is three full months. January, February. Uh, and, and February had 29 days. That's year, right. right. And then March all the way to the 31st. And that was a long month, wasn't it? I'll tell you what. That was a long <laughs> month ever. And so three full months that a woman has to work to get paid the same amount that a guy got paid as of December 31st last year. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems, uh, how do I say this, really wrong, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a really creative uh, way of uh, establishing the case and, and getting it out there to you know put it out in those terms. Yeah, no, it's it's just uh, amazing, and and so yeah, so equal payday, and they've been doing it for years. Uh, so you know, good to just a shout out to the folks at the uh, Coalition of Labor Union, uh, and I think that is what's their website there? Uh, got C L U W for Coalition of Labor right. Union Women uh, dot org. Yeah, I think so, that worked. Yeah, and you know what? I'm going to say, Katia, if you can go ahead and see if we can get um, uh, Michael Honey, uh, because uh, Michael is somebody who I've wanted to have on for a while. I know we were trying to get Heidi Barakowitz on, but, you know, we'll get Heidi on for next week because we've got some other issues we want to talk to her about. Uh, but if we can get Michael Honey on uh, all the way from uh, Tacoma, Washington, which is uh, we're not sure we want to talk to him about uh, Martin Luther King. Uh, but also, of course, Tacoma, Washington, that whole part of the country is another sort of epicenter of what's going on with the coronavirus right now. So Yeah, yeah, they've, uh, get, they've, get, they've really been hit up there. Yeah, and it's been sort of fascinating to see, you know, I think, you know, I was just thinking back to SARS, the SARS epidemic, the MERS, you know, um, uh, the uh, H1, uh, H1, what was the other part of H1? H1N1. H1N1, thank you. And then, of course, Ebola. Ebola, but all of those Ed Smith and, and, you know, you working with nurses were probably more clued into it than, than most. But I mean, honestly, those were things that took place like somewhere else, right? I mean, it, it was, I mean, I didn't, I never knew anybody who got hit by any of those, to be honest. Well, MRSA actually <clears throat> was pretty prevalent. Um, but it doesn't kill to the degree that COVID-19 does. And, you know, I was talking to somebody, I forget who it was, but, how soft we are as Americans, this kind of stuff. So third world countries often deal with these kind of diseases. And we, we take it for granted. We've taken it for granted for far too long. And, and this is the kind of crisis that now we're seeing people all across the world deal with horrible things like this. And, uh, 
yeah, you know, we talk about California, Washington State, now New York, and going to be us and probably Florida. And uh, the, uh, the interesting thing about this one, in my perspective, is this really is hitting everybody. I mean, everybody's got it now, I think. <laughs> uh, I think there's when you say everybody's got you mean the different communities. Or like, no, there's, there's no community that's not touched. One well, I also meant that everybody understands it now, right? And, and because oh, I see. I see. because they're touched personally with it. And, uh, you know, I guess there's still a few clowns running around uh, throwing parties and stuff. Uh, I don't know if you read that in the, the – uh, the, uh, um, whether it was in the news or the internet, but some some clown had a party. He was 26 years old and had a party in, in a motel room with a bunch of 15 to 17 year old kids. There was like 15 of them in the room. Did you hear about that? No, I thought you were going to talk about the one uh, locally. There was some guy who had a bonfire party down. Ah, I saw that one too. Yeah, you know, locally was, uh, down on the eastern shore. You know, yeah. and, and and I'm like, you know. I just don't get it, man. I really, you know, this is why, you know, you and me both, I mean, we're not generally much for the, you know, shutting things down and, you know, authorities being authoritative. But I got to tell you, you know, I mean, first of all, it's just a danger to yourself and those people around you, but it also endangers the entire community. And one of the things I was thinking at is that, you know, if you look at some of these other societies um, where, um you know, where they were able to impose. Somebody was telling me that in, in Wuhan, when they uh, when they cut off Wuhan, they literally dug ditches in the roads, right? They didn't just put up like orange cones, dude. I mean, they, they put, they, they dug, they literally cut the transportation to, to stop the in and, you know, the people going in and out, um, you know, and, and, and here we're just like, you know, pretty please, would you mind, you know, not, you know, and so people are doing things like having parties and hotel yeah. rooms and bonfires. And, and it was only, what was it yesterday, today that, that Florida finally got with the program? I think so. Right. And, and yeah, I mean, it is a fine line because yeah, our personal liberties, you know, I mean, the state, the state is telling you what to do and, you know, I get it. Uh, you know, I think we all value our freedoms, even though many, many, many of them have been taken away. Uh, you know, the Fourth Amendment, there really isn't any right to not have a search and seizure. But we do value our freedom, and, and it is hard to it's hard to grapple around the fact that the governments have to kind of do this. Because if they did, if they haven't, people just run around and, you know, get way too many people that think it's, still think it's a hoax. And, you know, again, it goes in part to the federal administration and what Trump has, you know, early posted early and and tweeted early in his initial um, press conferences, there are still some people that are feeling what he felt a month ago. So <laughs> let me, let me ask you a question. Cause this is something that I've heard coming up. And at first when I heard, I thought it was one of these fake news things. It just seemed so unbelievable to me that one of the things that I heard was that, um, that they were not allowing nurses to uh, wear the, who did have masks, right? But they weren't allowing the nurses to wear them into rooms because Hello. they were afraid uh, that they were going to. Can you hear me? Hi, David. Hey, David. How you doing? I Hold think on actually, one second. We've been joined by Heidi as well. We have a, a do we have both Heidi and David? We got a full house. Okay. Um, good. There yeah. You are. Let me try to get this. Uh... You're, you're on air, David. 
And All right. Hey. If you're there, if you can stand by for just a sec, we got a little a little bit that we're going to do with our, our good friend, uh, David Schloss. David, you look good. I, I, I get to see you on uh, on the uh, the um, uh, Skype here. We usually just do this. Uh, I'm not seeing him. I'm seeing him. I'm seeing him. I, I, see, I, I see you, Ed, and... Would you put some clothes on, please? <laughs> please. It's, 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 it's a workplace hazard, dude. It's radio. All right. I, 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 read, uh, I read somewhere today that um, we now eight, now 8 o'clock means that you change out of your day pajamas and into your night pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> so. I had not gotten that memo, but uh, that's, that's good. All right, uh, David, what's our, what's our case closed case this week? So uh, I thought what we would talk about this week is the idea of uh, – it's a question I get all the time, guys, and that is particularly from the younger uh, union workers that I represent, and that is, well, gosh, do I need to report every little thing that happens to me on the job? Aren't I going to uh, be construed as a troublemaker uh, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to lose my job. And, and by the way, when this um, health crisis is over, which it will be someday, you know, people are going to be worried about um, employers laying them off uh, and looking for reasons to lay them off. And, and um, so the question I get asked is, OK, well, do I report every injury that occurs uh, when I'm at work? And the answer that I give to that question typically is, if it's something that requires medical treatment, yes, you do have to report it. If it's a paper cut and you know you're not going to need to go see a doctor <laughs> for it, then uh, you don't need to report it. But if it's going to require medical treatment, you do. Why is that? Let me give you a great example, okay? I represented a, a union sheet metal worker. He was um, uh, happened to be in a presentation that I gave way back when, when he was an apprentice. And um, he remembered me saying, you got to report all on the job injuries because you don't know what it's going to morph into. You don't know how serious it's going to be. And if you um, if you don't, you may end up being out of luck, out of time, um, when it comes time, you know, where you do need workers' comp benefits to kick in. And so um, this gentleman uh, was actually a, a guy who um, remembered I had given that presentation. I teach a lot of the union apprentice classes about what to do and what not to do if you're injured at work. And um, he called me up one day and he said, look, I hurt my um, – back. I felt a pop. I missed two days of work. I went to the doctor. Uh, the doctor says, um, you know, that's a typical kind of injury. Let's see if it gets any better. He goes back to work after missing a few days and after seeing a doctor. And um, he says, I don't need to file a claim, right? I've worked for this company for years and years and years. I don't want to, um, I don't want, you know, they've been very good to me. That's the line we hear all the time, right? They've been very good to sure, me. Sure. And 
And I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to jeopardize my job by filing a workers' comp claim. I said, you know what? His name was Maurice. I said, Maurice, you know what? Um, I understand that, but you're not suing your employer. You're filing an administrative claim as part of their cost of doing business. And um, my strong recommendation is that you come in. We'll make a protective filing on your behalf. We did that. So we basically didn't even claim any benefits at that point, guys, because he had only missed two days of work and his union health insurance had, had covered his medical treatment. And we filed the thing and sat on it. And I remember uh, uh, what he said to me. He said to me as he's leaving my office that day, uh, I hope I never see you again. <laughs> and, uh, and I said to him, I hope not either. But I suspect we will talk again. And fast forward five years after that, okay? Sure enough, I get a call, and um, the guy had continued to work for five years. His back had bothered him on and off, as you can imagine it would in a job like that. And um, he had gone back to see the doctor. And the doctor said he needed a cervical fusion surgery. Big deal. Big deal. And it was related, according to the doctor, to the injury that occurred five years earlier. Same doctor, right? He went to the same doctor, which was the smart thing to do. Uh, and because we had made that protective filing, guess what? Um, he was covered. Now, you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about something called the discovery rule. And and I told you about that case where uh, the the court basically said you don't need to file the claim until one year of when you uh, knew that it was going to be a disabling injury. Well, this guy had missed two days of work already. This, you know, five years earlier, this guy, uh, Maurice, had gone to the doctor already. So, um in fact, he did know it was disabling, at least in the sense of missing two days of work. And so because we had made that protective filing, we were able to connect the dots pointing back to the original work injury. We had sat on it, did nothing on the case other than, uh, you know, every so often I'd send him a Christmas card and um, and and check in with him. But um, because we had made that protective filing, we were able uh, through after some some litigation on the medical issues, we were able to successfully resolve that case. Um, and I'm pleased to report that at age 55, he uh, after his successful cervical fusion surgery, he retired, um, lives um, in North Carolina on the beach and reminds me constantly whenever he checks in with me because we remain close that thank god i had told him to file that claim to make that protective filing <laughs> um because he would have been as we as we like to say sol right and ed knows what is that, that a legal so, term uh, david SOL. yes it's a hybrid term right guys uh, <laughs> mean, means a couple different things and, and and there's they're all similar so uh so the message here is this. Look, no one wants to be a troublemaker. No one wants to be 
you know, looked upon by their employer as being the guy who reports every goddamn, sorry, everything that, uh, you know, that ever happens to him or her on the job site, right? Sure, sure. Particularly in a, you know, in, in a manual labor type position, a building trades uh, union job. Having said that, the, 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 you know, the workers are, are uh, obligated to look out for their own best interests. I say that to them all the time because the employers, they could be the nicest guys in the world, okay? Your supervisor can be someone who will um, uh, go to bat for you nine times out of ten. But guess when they're not going to go to bat for you? They're not going to go to bat for you when money's at stake, when um, uh, their company profits are at stake. And um, everyone, and I say this to all the apprentices I talk to, everyone has to uh, look out for their own best interest. So what did Maurice do? Maurice looked out for his own, his own best interest by filing a claim. It cost him nothing to do so. And five years later, he looked back on it as one of the best decisions he made. So and that was, and the best decision we made was getting uh, David Schloss on to do case close. We got to run, David, but it's great talking to you. We'll see you in two weeks, okay? Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. Thanks, David. Be safe. Yeah, we will. Yeah, partner, partner in the law firm of Coons, McKinney, Johnson, and DePaulis. That's going to do it for this hour of your rights of work. But don't touch that dial. We have a special bonus hour coming up. Uh, a couple of guests who we were not able to get to this hour. I'm talking about Heidi Berkowitz and Michael Honey will be with you after this news break. So stay tuned for hour two of your rights at work. Chris Garlick and Ed Smith will be right back. Thanks for listening.